Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Gunster on the Go, Florida's podcast for business. I'm your host, Holly Goodman, a shareholder with the Gunster Law Firm in Florida. On these podcasts, we cover the latest developments that Florida's employers need to know. We touch on topics ranging from important changes in EEOC guidance to new Florida laws affecting your workforce. Although this podcast does not provide legal advice, we will discuss our opinions on how cutting-edge legal issues could affect your business. One hot topic in Employment Matters today is a recent rule that was issued by the Federal Department of Labor on the classification of independent contractors and the way to determine whether or not an independent contractor should really be treated as an employee. This is a really important issue to Florida's businesses, and I am fielding calls on it daily right now. So to help us dissect this new DOL rule, I have joining me here today, my colleague, Betty Miranda. Betty, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me set the stage a little bit here, Betty. Although we know that the Fair Labor Standards Act has been around for literally decades, from time to time, usually in connection with the change in administration, we see changes to how the Department of Labor interprets the FLSA with updates to its rules and regulations. And the DOL just recently did that, issuing a new rule that updates how it's going to interpret who is an employee and who is an independent contractor under the FLSA. So what can you tell us about this new rule? Sure, you're correct. The classification of a worker as an employee or as an independent contractor is important for a number of reasons. But as you stated, one of the most significant one is to determine whether the FLSA applies to that worker. And as you know, Holly, the FLSA sets federal rules for wages and overtime pay. The DOL's new rule, which goes into effect on March 11th, 2024, shifts the focus of evaluating the employment relationship from specific factors to a more nuanced consideration of the economic realities of that relationship. The new rule adopts a six-factor evaluation that takes into account the relationship between the parties and the degree of the worker's economic dependence on an employer or customer. So now we're seeing an influx since the pandemic began, more gig workers, more folks that would be generally viewed as independent contractors. So I think the DOL has had an incentive to bring out more regulations, bring out more guidance, as to whether those folks are truly independent contractors or whether they should be seen as employees. You know, I think it's really interesting that the the DOL is suggesting that they're moving away from a factor-based test to a more nuanced analysis, but then they follow it up with giving us six factors that they're going to look at as part of that, quote, nuanced reality or nuanced evaluation. So how exactly does this new rule change how the DOL used to evaluate the classification of a worker? Sure. So the DOL first came out with a rule regarding independent contractors in early 2021. The new rule rescinds the 2021 rule, which is currently in place, although it's in litigation. And that rule that's currently in place is focused on two core factors, the company's right to control and a worker's opportunity for profit or loss. Interestingly, those two factors are still part of this new rule. But before, if those two factors, the control and and a worker's opportunity for loss or profit, pointed in the same direction, the analysis ended. It was sort of, of a checklist. Those two things were checked in one way or another. That's it. The new rule considers the totality of circumstances surrounding the relationship. 
So although it acknowledges by still incorporating those two factors of the control and the worker's opportunity for loss and profit, it integrates them into a broader assessment and doesn't consider them in isolation or assigns them a specific weight. Interestingly, instead of having these two factors, now we have six factors, And but the DL has said it's not an exhaustive list. So they say there may be additional factors that may be considered in reviewing the relationship, although they don't necessarily name what those additional factors may be. Yeah, I think that's always the risk when we're talking about the classification of workers is that there is no black and white. The prior rule that's been in effect until now with the two factors, and if they're pointing in the same direction, as you said, meaning that workers should be classified one way or another, at least gave some semblance of a rule for employers. And now we're back to kind of looking at this totality of the circumstances. And so let's talk about these six factors and try to help our listeners break down what they mean. And so I I know that the first one you mentioned is a holdover from the prior rule, which is the opportunity for profit or loss. And I believe, I, I don't know whether they've added it or not, but typically that means depending on managerial skill. How do you interpret what's the important part of that rule? Sure. So the first factor, as you mentioned, is the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on managerial skill that affects the worker's economic success. So basically what this means is if the worker has an opportunity to earn profits or incur losses based on their exercise of initiative or business judgment, then they're more likely to be viewed as an independent contractor. Meaning if they are able to advertise and negotiate a contract, if they're out there trying to hire a helper or those types of business judgment that would occur if you're, you would naturally be seen as an independent contract. So that would sort of weigh in favor of someone being classified as an independent contractor versus someone who reports, for instance, the DOL uses the example of a worker for a landscaping company who performs assignments determined by the company. So they're not advertising their services. They're sort of just showing up as they're called to perform a specific job. Right. So it's not enough to say that a worker can earn more money by working more hours or by working the assignments, the types of assignments that they're assigned. It sounds like what we're really looking at is just like a business owner, we've got to determine whether or not that worker can control a profit. Can they find a way to make the product that they're giving the employer more profitable for themselves by either cutting costs or being more efficient with it, or as you said, maybe hiring somebody to do the work for them who costs less than that independent contractor could earn on their own. So it does require more than just working more hours. Exactly. Which I think kind of goes into the DOL's second factor here, which is the investments by the worker and the potential employer. I think that Again, we're looking at something here that references the idea of being in business for yourself. Am I right on that? Yes. So the rule describes that where a worker bears investments that are capital or entrepreneurial in nature, serving a business-like function, such as increasing the worker's ability to do different types of work or reduce their costs, the worker is more likely to be an independent contractor. So an example of this is graphic designer that designs services to like a commercial design firm. The firm provides the designer software, computer, office space, all the necessary equipment or tools they need to create this design work. That worker is more likely to be classified as an employee versus a graphic designer who 
you know, maybe on a project basis for a firm and purchases their own design software, purchases their own tools, like a digital pen or whatever the case may be. And it's investing in these could be a capital or entrepreneurial tools, equipment, and that person is more likely to be classified as an independent contractor. One thing that I just heard you say when you're talking about the second person, the one more likely to be an independent contractor in that example, was a project basis. And so how does the length of time that a worker is performing services for an employer or a prospective employer, how does that impact the analysis? Sure. That's actually the third factor, which is the degree of permanence of the relationship. So this factor considers whether the worker's relationship is continuous, indefinite, or exclusive for the work. In that case, that worker is more likely to be deemed an employee or whether the worker's relationship is definite, it's not inclusive, it's sporadic, it's project-based, and that worker's more likely to be deemed an independent contractor. So if the worker has the freedom to work for multiple employers, they have the freedom to say no to the assignment, or that assignment is constrained for a period of time, maybe hitting certain milestones, or they just need to be able to produce a project in three months, for example, those are all signs that this may be more of an independent contractor than an employer-employee relationship. The second holdover from the old rule is this idea of control. And I think that's been a long-standing factor, no matter where you're looking when you're talking about deciding whether somebody's an independent contractor or worker over the years. Control has always been a big factor. And it's my understanding that that remains one of the factors that the Department of Labor says goes into this totality of the circumstances consideration. So how is the issue of control going to be taken into account? So yes, Holly, control continues to be a factor in the assessment of whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee. If the employer exercises control over key aspects of the worker's performance, the worker is more likely to be classified as an employee. Control has always been a key factor, and sometimes folks look at control as the only, the standalone factor, because it's oftentimes the easiest to interpret, right? If an employer is telling the worker what to do, then they may say, okay, the analysis stops here. But this new rule makes it much more, as we've discussed, much more nuanced. The rule uses the example of a registered nurse to illustrate this factor. So a registered nurse who provides nursing care for a nursing home and sets the work schedule and input from staff is prohibited from working for other nursing homes, for instance, and is supervised through you know, regular check-ins and managers. So that's more of an employee relationship. By contrast, a registered nurse providing specialty movement therapy to residents at a nursing home so even though the nursing home is providing the location and maybe providing the patient, that registered nurse may maintain a website that has pricing and may be contracted by the nursing home and not specifically by the resident. And they set their own schedule of when they're available to come in to provide these services. And that may look more like an independent contractor. So again, it's a nuanced, even in the control factor, we still are looking at specific things like setting schedules, pay, negotiating contract prices, setting time off, setting the timeline for projects to be completed. All these things are many factors that go into the control factor. 
And I think one of the things that we've started to see, especially you mentioned earlier, the idea of the gig economy and how it really kicked up during the pandemic is it, it kind of always begs the question as well is what it means when the work that's being performed is going to be an integral part of the employer's business. We all see things like the ride sharing apps. I won't name them, but the ride sharing apps. And we know that there's constant fights over whether or not their drivers or employees or independent contractors when that's theoretically the service that they provide, although they'll tell you that the service they provide is the app that connects a driver with a customer. So how does this idea of the employer's business and how the work that's being performed fits into it, how does that factor into the independent contractor analysis? Sure. So the DOL's guidance on whether how it considers integration of work into the employer's business is really honed into looking at whether the function the worker performs is an integral part of that business, meaning that if the employer could not function without that worker's service, then the service is integral and the worker is more likely to be deemed an employee. So going back to example of a designer, like a logo designer, a graphic designer, company may hire someone to do rebranding or marketing. That may not be an integral part of the business. Let's say it's a landscaping company that's not integral to their business. Although if they don't have a website, if they don't have a nice logo, if they don't have good marketing strategy, they may not get much business, but it may not be seen as an integral part of the business. Whereas the folks that are mowing the lawns that are going and doing the landscaping that are planting the trees and the plants, they may be seen as employee because without that service, a landscaping company cannot provide the service that they're advertising that they do. So this new six-factor test or guidance is more nuanced. And with it being more nuanced, it means that it's more subjective, open to different interpretations. Yeah. And I think that that last example kind of leads us into our final factor as well, right? When you're talking about a graphic designer, there's some level of skill and initiative required, especially if they're out on their own performing these one-off projects for businesses to help with the logo design. So tell me a little bit more about how skill and initiative factors into the analysis. Sure. So that's the last factor in the new rule. It's the worker skill initiative. And the factor assesses whether a worker uses specialized skill to perform the work. So where a worker does not use specialized skill or is dependent on training from the employer to perform the work, they're more likely to be deemed an employee. Someone who's, for instance, standing in an assembly line and they are trained to perform specific tasks with a trinket and that's all they do versus someone who's bringing in their own skill set to design a process for instance, or design a package that will hold the trinket, may be viewed more as an independent contractor. So now we know that there's these six factors. They're not exhaustive. We look at them in the totality. But from a practical perspective, how does this new role affect employers? And on the flip side of that, workers? So I think, and it's not necessarily just because of the new role, I think employers should just have a more thorough assessment of their classification practices and the nature of their relationships with workers. Those relationships may shift as a company grows, as a company shrinks, and as the mission or vision changes. And that's because the risk of misclassification is so significant. 
Uh, misclassification of workers as independent contractors, whether unintentionally or willfully, may result in significant liability by the employer under the FLSA and other applicable employment and employee benefit laws. Employers who misclassify their workers as independent contractors may be liable for back wages, including unpaid overtime, as well as liquidated damages and attorney's fees under the FLSA. So it is important that employers get into the habit, essentially, of making sure that their contracts and their sort of their relationship with workers are properly classified. And for workers, it may provide greater clarity and protection in determining their employment status and entitlements under the FLSA. But this may just depend on the worker and perhaps if they have a preference on what that employment relationship is. And so I think it's really important right now, given kind of this change and all of the prospective liability that you just went through, both under the FLSA and then also under other employee benefit laws, under the tax code, the IRS doesn't really like it very much when individuals are misclassified as independent contractors because they want the employers to be paying the employment taxes for those workers. Uh, so there's a lot of risk out there for employers. And I think that this rule especially with it going into effect as of March 11th, gives employers an opportunity to take another hard look at the classification of their workers and evaluate whether or not the workers are going to continue to meet the standards under the new Department of Labor guidance and under state law as well. Here in Florida, we follow the FLSA, but if we have any listeners who might have workers or contractors in other states, there are some states that have laws that are actually more restrictive under their state wage and hour laws than even the FLSA. So it's really important, I think, right now for employers to really evaluate those relationships and decide whether or not those workers are properly classified and should remain classified as they've been classified in the past. Yes, for sure. I think employers should proactively review their current classification practices in light of the updated guidelines. Like you said, for instance, IRS tax code has already implemented economic realities approach of these six factors even before this DOL guidance. So this is just another incentive and opportunity for employers to go through an assessment of the nature of the work relationship, including each of the factors we've discussed today, and to revisit and if necessary, revise existing contracts that they have to reflect the nuanced considerations emphasized by the DOL. It's also important to note that just because a worker prefers an independent contractor arrangement, there's no guarantee that the employer will escape liability for misclassification. So challenges to independent contractor classifications can arise from a number of sources, making the practical risk of liability from misclassification even higher. Well, thank you, Betty, so much for coming in and talking us through this rule and these factors and from a practical perspective, how it is that the Department of Labor is going to implement it. I think that this is going to be essential listening for all of Florida's businesses. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Holly. And thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Gunster on the Go, a podcast brought to you by Gunster, Florida's law firm for business. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date on future episodes, you can find us at gunster.com forward slash on the go or subscribe to the program through Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is Holly Goodman. Until next time.